right, everyone, we're going to get started so as to make the most of our time with our speaker. I understand that this microphone is very temperamental, and you have to talk into it to activate it. So uh, anyway, well, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for being here for the final session of our terrific three-part series on Calvin Coolidge, our nation's 30th president. Uh, and with us today as our final speaker is Amity Schlaes, who is the chair of the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Amity is a historian by craft, and she's also the author of six books, four of which have been New York Times bestsellers. Her most recent book is titled Great Society, which is a history of the Johnson and Nixon years. Many of you know her book, The Forgotten Man, which is a history of the Great Depression. And she has a new column now in National Review titled The Forgotten Book. She is the winner of the Hayek, the Bastiat, and Bradley Prizes. And just last fall, she won the William F. Buckley Prize for political thought. Many of you know her from her columns and opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Financial Times. And she works hard, interestingly, to get traditional history onto other media. And toward that end, has produced a terrific one-hour documentary on President Coolidge, which I commend to all of you, as well as a long graphic novel on the Great Depression. Of course, this morning, Amity's going to talk about her book, Coolidge, which is a biography of the president. And I'll close with this. In his preface to the 10th anniversary edition of Coolidge, uh, which sold a quarter million, by the way, the columnist George Will wrote, no product of the historian's craft in this century has done as much long-delayed justice to a historic person and a much maligned era as Schlaes's Coolidge. In the 10 years since it was published, this book has become a gift to the nation that keeps on giving. So with that, please join me in welcoming <laughs> Evidence Schlaes. There's water for you right there. Well, what, can you hear me? Even in the back? Yeah, yeah okay. Well, my hat is off to you, um, a, a group willing to spend three sessions with Calvin Coolidge, and I want to thank Clark for organizing what is in effect a seminar on, on Calvin, on 30. Uh, won't talk too long. Um, I'm going to talk about depression, and, and you'll uh, see why in a minute. It has to do with the fact that because you, you did hear Garland Tucker and Matt Denhart before me, uh, and they gave you basically the political picture, the election of 24, Garland's new book, and the bio, it seemed useful for us now to concentrate on um, the treatment of Coolidge in history books and in public opinion. Uh, treatment might not be the wrong term for the history books because what's interesting about the history books is that when it comes to Coolidge, they don't treat him. You know there are more exciting presidents. Uh, we can define what is exciting, but uh, the usual names are Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and after Coolidge, four years later, uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, most books textbooks, uh, study guides relegate Calvin Coolidge to uh, the role of seat warmer. You, you speed ahead in between figure, um, between Roosevelt's, and sometimes, uh, most often, the books suggest that Coolidge policy brought on the Great Depression of the 1930s. 
academics make that case regularly. So that's the first depression we're going to talk about this morning. Presidential ranking, Coolidge uh, doesn't fare much better. C-SPAN, um, of which I'm one of the advisors, uh, presidential poll, the, um, well, he ranks 24 there. Um, other polls, he ranks 27 or worse. There was a poll of political scientists that came out last week that said even Republican political scientists ranked him low. Uh, I'm going to look into that. I'm not quite sure about that. There aren't many Republican political scientists. So it's a, it's a very, very uh, thin sample. I'm worried about their N. Um, and why, why else besides the Great Depression do, do people rank Coolidge low? Um, they maintain the, the problem was another depression, which is Coolidge's personal depression after the death of his son, Calvin Jr., in the White House period, 1924, 16-year-old luck child, kind of an Austin Furs uh, friend of, of Clark's and mine, um, passed away. There's an excellent book, uh, Maintaining the Death of Calvin Jr., Broke the President. It's called The Tormented President, Calvin Coolidge, Death and Clinical Depression. So I'll talk about these depressions. First, uh, the economic one and then incapacitating alleged, and then the uh, personal incapacitating depression ascribed to Coolidge after the death of Calvin du Jr. and do what I can to supply some context for those. Uh, my research suggests, um, and the research of our foundation for that matter, it's a, a different story to those, to those, um, those theories. Uh, so first we'll do the cerebral part, and I think it's, um, I, 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 Clark mentioned you talked a little bit about what caused the Great Depression in, in a prior session. I still want to get to it, because it is the first question you get asked if you say anything positive about Calvin Coolidge. Well, you know what followed, right? And so on. Um, the argument that Coolidge caused the Great Depression, think of it as a chain of logical links, the first link is that 20s growth was false, that the 20s were all a champagne bubble in Jay Gatsby's glass, right? Uh, and while well, money was for monetarists actually heap on here, pile on, well, money was loose or tight or in the wrong order, and Coolidge goose the stock market, you hear that too. You often hear uh, more and more, in fact, that inequality caused the Great Depression, which is a very strange argument for economics, but they make it. Um, so the 20s were unequal, and that led to the Great Depression. And the Gatsby story, which is really, uh, Great Gatsby is really the history book to explain the Great Depression in high school. It's supposed to be English literature, but that is what kids take away about the Great Depression, because Gatsby is one of the most taught books in the United States. We can all love it. It's economics are, um, applying it to economics is a, a second matter. Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, for example, um, also reports that Coolidge told Americans in 29 that the economy was absolutely sound and equities were cheap at, at the price. Um, the implication being Coolidge should have done something and he didn't. Coolidge left office in 29, the market crashed, uh, the, the standard narrative proceeds, next link, uh, Hoover continued, President Herbert Hoover continued Coolidge's laissez-faire policy. Um, the result was the Dow dropped almost, by almost 90%, didn't come back 
uh, for a decade. And as you know, unemployment did stay above 10% throughout the 1930s. The Depression really was great. The, and it was all Coolidge and Hoover's fault. Um, and and uh, very eminent people do this. Uh, Robert Schiller of Yale, Schiller Case Index, um, what said on television a couple years ago, unfortunately, Cal Coolidge is not the example we want for good government because it all came crashing down in 29. Was this Coolidge's fault, said, said Mr. Schiller, Professor Schiller? I kind of think it was. Even a drive-by like that coming from an eminence hurts and has impact because most people are intimidated by economics and economists. Post Coolidge, ergo Proctor Coolidge is the argument. But when you go back to these links, uh, they begin to dissolve in front of you. For starters, um, the 20s were a very good decade economically. The laissez-faire policy didn't hurt the growth and probably helped the 20s. They really did roar. Um, the relatively pro-business, or let's just say business-friendly policy of the government did yield 4% real growth. I used to work for President uh, George Bush at his library and institute a little bit, and we had this project called the 4% Growth Project, but frankly, it was an aspirational project because that's what we didn't have, 4% growth. They did have close to 4% real growth in the 20s. What's more, the notion um, that uh, only uh, Daisy and Jay benefited from the growth of the 20s is false. The 20s saw fantastic improvements for regular people. Um, the standard, when you think about um, what is the measure when you send your children uh, to India or to another country or you go there to improve life there, the number one difference between poverty and working class is what? Indoor plumbing. That's what America got in the 1920s. That was when it became the rule rather than the exception to um, this was the decade when people got their vehicles for the first time, Model T, then Model A in Coolidge's second term. They, we of course, got electricity, radios, telephones, and appliances, such as the washing machine, which were very important for, for women. There's a wonderful article describing the drudgery of trying to be a housewife uh, in the teens pre-electric, right? the amount of washing work alone. Um, it was also the decade, um, you know, we t they talk a lot about productivity gains. It was a decade of productivity gains. Great. Um, what does that mean? What that meant, very concretely, was that for the same amount of money, one could work five days, not six. So when I talk to high schoolers, I say, the 20s were the decade that gave us Saturday. Saturday off, and, and that's, that's a good way to explain it. Um, it was more, uh, if you're familiar with the old Cheaper by the Dozen movie, not the newer one, it was more Cheaper by the Dozen than Gatsby in reality this decade. The patent rate was stellar. Uh, it's still studied at Harvard Business School. Um, as a result, so, so this was a wager by, by Coolidge, by Harding before him, that if they could make the economy better, people would thrive, and divisions would melt. And, and they indeed did. The Ku Klux Klan had strength in the early part of the 20s up to the 
terrifying march here in Washington, but then the bottom fell out of the Klan. And, and the, the lynching rate even went down in the later 20s because of the general prosperity. So make people able to see opportunity, make them live, enable them to live better, make them enable themselves to be able to enable themselves to live better, and some of our divisions will melt away. That was the wager, and, and, and the politicians of that period won it. Um, did the stock market go too high? You bet. It went to 381 from 100. Well, I mean, uh, really, uh, I would say it probably should have stopped at 250 uh, relative to the rate of growth in the economy and the future of new products. Um, it certainly was very high. Was it the fault of the government? Not necessarily. Uh, think about Coolidge from his point of view. Uh, once we made a chart, and we have a whole magazine about this actually, how many crashes did Coolidge see? Well, he saw five before he came to Washington. And um, one, just as he was coming to Washington, the Dow dropped 30 to 40%. That's quite a hefty drop. Imagine that would happen today, uh, right? Uh, and what the number would be. But the, the market had always come back, and the government, by and large, had ignored crashes. We didn't have a Securities and Exchange Commission at that time. The Fed had different attitudes. To give you an example, in 1920-21, when there was a, this, a, a steep but quick depression, uh, it's now known as the Forgotten Depression because it was so quick, what did the Fed do? It did not ease. It doubled interest rates. It raised interest rates by 300 basis points. That's counter to our philosophy today. What did the government do? The government cut spending. That's also counter. Uh, that would be wrapped as pro-cyclical as opposed to virtuously counter-cyclical in most uh, economic sessions. But uh, it did seem to work out. Um, it, the crash of 29 and that evil quote that John Kenneth Galbraith offers, George uh, Nash, who's the, the biographer of Hoover, the foremost Hoover scholar in the country, and I looked into it, and it turned out that both Galbraith and Hoover got the year wrong. Coolidge had said that a year before when the market was lower. But, but, but errors get ironed in by repeat and by exhortation. Uh, it always helps to go back and check. So we wrote uh, our forensic results um, up in Forbes one time. Uh, the second chain that Hoover followed Coolidge's laissez-faire policy, that's not accurate. We don't have time to get into all of it, but I'll mention some ways Hoover was not like Coolidge. He uh, raised the tariff violently by s signing the um, really infamous, worthily infamous Smoot-Hawley tariff. Um, he raised the income tax violently, uh, erasing the low rates of Coolidge and Harding. And he did something which is subtler, but I think most important. Hoover believed that uh, he was a pre-Keynesian, that if you increased wages, people would spend more, and that would bring us faster to recovery. So we would call that Keynesianism today. At least it's an emphasis on demand, right? Demand drives recovery. And so he placed enormous pressure on Wall Street and on Main Street to sustain high wages. That was very different to the past. In the past, in a downturn, what did employers do given a free choice? You're an employer, you have a company, 
your profits are less, you can do two things. You can lay off people or you can cut their wages. In the past, we had always cut wages because that's also the more humane thing to do if you know your employees. Dear friend, I'd like to pay you more. I cannot this year. Here is my, is my profit line. Will you stick with me even if I pay you lower wages? What was different about 29 was not only did Hoover um, lean on companies and they were afraid to keep wages high, but also certain laws were passed that put upward pressure on wages right into the statute. Um, uh, one is the Davis-Bacon Act, which applied to federal contracts, which were important in a downturn. Right, right. Uh, so what did the employer do then? Given that I must pay high wages, the president told me so, or the law told me so, well, I will lay people off. I pay high wages, but I forgot about the person in the corner I have laid off. That was the difference in 29 that people don't discuss. Um, I did write my Forgotten Man book is about all this and why the Great Depression was the Great Depression and it was um, every year you can look for a different reason why the Depression continued. Uh, um, recoveries are like people, you can anthropomorphize them. Uh, every year the recovery took a look at what was going on in the U.S. economy and said to herself or himself, I will stay away one more year. Uh, it was like a series of decisions. If you want to say what deterred recovery uh, and sent her fleeing, uh, the two emphases I would place are not monetary, as a matter of fact. Um, one is the incredible uncertainty under Hoover and President Roosevelt about what was going to happen. Bold, persistent experimentation sounds good when the economy is frozen, but it also froze businesses because they were terrified of what could happen to them. That is, they postponed capital expenditures. They, of course, postponed rehiring because of the high wage requirement and so on. And um, so uncertainty and the labor cost. If you look at labor costs for the 20th century, you will see that wages in the 30s were way high relative to unemployment and way high relative to trend. That was because of political pressure. Uh, so that tragedy of such unemployment was partly caused uh, by government policy. I'll pause there um, and go on to the second depression, that is uh, Dogs Coolidge's reputation, the depression about the death of his 16-year-old son, Calvin. Uh, you by now know the basic facts. You're graduate students in this topic. Uh, there were two sons, John and Calvin, Luckchild Calvin. He really was. Uh, he, he sort of took the temperature for his family. He was one of those children who, who helped his parents. He saw what was going on and he helped out. He saw even their, their sorrow, um, or let's just say their, the purgatory that Washington can be. They arrive in Washington with lots of goals. Um, you know, new administration, I'm president, Vice President Coolidge, um, and they move into the new Willard. The new Willard itself was a kind of purgatory because it was very public. And the vice president's, the, the second lady, the vice president's wife, had social obligations, which they learned from the marshals, their predecessors. They had to have these um, receptions, which were more like stampedes. So you imagine, like you say, reception at a college, right? Reception, heavy buffet. 
what do you get when you put heavy buffet, right? Hundreds of people would crowd into their little receiving rooms in their little apartments. The Coolidges were accustomed to pets, and there was no room for pets at the Willard. Uh, and Mrs. Coolidge made, befriended a mouse uh, and left a little crumb right by the mouse, mousey hole, and that mouse became her only pet. And Calvin wrote a poem, uh, that Calvin uh, wrote a poem about it called Success, because of course being in Washington was success. They hadn't dreamed of this. Um, and he, the poem was called uh, Success. Men slave for you and with life pay. They can clutch you for one day. Men say untruths for you alone, and by foul means you're called their own success. Um, as I say, he was also, um, didn't just give expression to his parents' ambivalence, he also stoked them. He also supported them. He happened, did, did anyone mention this before, to work in a tobacco field? Yes, we have those in Massachusetts. There's good soil for, um, did we hear about this? No, no. In Hatfield, Mass, you can drive by there right now, right outside Northampton. Um, the summer of 23, when his father was uh, acceded to the presidency. So that was, he was 15. Um, uh, and. Um, Warren Harding had passed away, and there was Calvin Jr., a, a boy growing fast in the tobacco field. And another person there, I think it was a boy, said, well, your father's president. If my father were president, I wouldn't work in any tobacco field. Um, and Calvin Jr. said, if my father were your father, you would. <laughs> if my father were... I, I, he understood the importance of show, demonstrating service for the whole family, particularly at the time of the Harding scandal, right? Teapot Dome and all that. The Coolidges had to behave impeccably, and that is a stress on a family. They did not ride ponies in the White House. They did not, you know, they really uh, were decorous, and it was painful, but they wanted to clean up a presidency besmirched. Um, Coolidge very determined uh, on economics uh, and international justice even, which is a lesser told story of Coolidge. He was there more in line with Taft. Uh, maybe he didn't want the League of Nations, but he wasn't averse to a world court or something like that. He liked international law uh, as a recourse and because it might conceivably reduce the likelihood of war. Um, I'll start with the econ uh, tax cuts were um, like, as, as the Civil War was to Lincoln, tax was to Coolidge. He was going to do it. This was his campaign. He was devoted to it. He wouldn't win it in one battle, particularly not early, because the Congress was not strongly on the Republican side. And the Republican Party was divided. And some of the Republicans wanted tax increases. Coolidge and Mellon, his general, were completely determined to lower taxes. They were well over 50. They wanted to get them down to 25 top marginal rate. Um, Coolidge in 24 did manage to pass his first tax cut. And that's when the blow comes, summer of 24. Calvin plays tennis. Calvin Jr., now 16, grown a few inches, plays tennis on the White House court. Um, stubs his, um, his shoe is too small. That's what happens to boys when their feet grow fast. The blister becomes septic, and he passes away within a week. The news reached the nation the night of July 7, and I, I mean it reached the whole nation. 
um, one place it arrived was at the Democratic National Convention at Madison Square. Um, they were on the 84th ballot. It was a very contentious convention, the Democratic Convention of 24, as Garland told you. Um, Chairman Walsh halted everything. The noise stopped at, to announce the death of Calvin Jr. And the New York Times described the reaction. A low moan lasting many seconds filled the hall as the crowd absorbed what Walsh had said. The country, exhausted by politics, suddenly saw the presidency, saw humanity, and saw their opponent Coolidge in a new light. And this is what the Times wrote. Their sorrows, American sorrows, are his, as he frequently attests. But in an especial sense, his grief is also theirs. A shared moment. And Coolidge himself wrote of the death of Calvin Jr. When he went, the power and the glory of the presidency went with him. Well, historians took that, and particularly this Robert Gilbert, um, and view it as, portray it as the end of the Coolidge presidency. Coolidge is then utterly immobilized by grief in this argument, and the rest of the presidency, he naps a lot. It's sort of, uh, if you've heard um, comments about Reagan too, you know, that, that he naps a lot, therefore he's a lazy president. He did nothing, he was quiet, he was angry. He yelled at the help. It may have been so. But the evidence suggests um, that this view uh, is a sort of pathologizing or psychologizing. That is, um, we're imposing our, our modern assumptions on Coolidge. Um, about particularly about mortality. To us, the loss of a child is not only a tragedy, it's unthinkable, because it doesn't befall too many of us too often. It, it, there are some people in this room to whom it's happened, but it's not that often. In that period, they lived with grief. They had no antibiotics. Had they had antibiotics, Calvin would have lived. They did not have incubators. Any baby born a month early died. They lost their sons in wars, World War I. Um, to get a feel, I think it's important to get a feel for the proximity of death, particularly the death of children. I'm going to mention a few people in the Coolidge entourage. The vice president, I, I, whose name I said before, Thomas Marshall, the Democratic vice president to Wilson, that they had no children, the Marshalls. Um, they lived in the Wardman Park, by the way. Up Connecticut. Um, however, they did adopt a son, Morrison Marshall, and Morrison died at age three of acidosis. Now, someone, a doctor here can tell me what that is. But um, the, the man Coolidge chose for vice president, um, Charles Dawes, uh, had a son, Rufus, Rufus Fearing Dawes, who drowned in Lake Geneva. There were no lights. Um, swimming, Princeton. Dawes wrote, he has taken me, asking me to help them, he has taken me with him in a way, asking me to help those, the poor and lowly of the earth. General Pershing, very close to the Coolidge's, always sat with Mrs. Coolidge, had lost Mrs. Pershing and three of his four children in a fire at the Presidio. 
the Coolidge's spend a lot of time with Ned and Evelyn Walsh McLean, then the owners of the Washington Post, uh, went swimming with them. Young Calvin had swum in the McLean's pool, and the McLean's lost his son, Vincent, in a car accident. A family that lost a younger generation member was the rule. The exception was one that hadn't lost anyone high or low at that time. The evidence that Coolidge persevered, it, I, I think Coolidge grieved. Well, I'll say it later, but the evidence that Coolidge persevered is, is very real. Um, it took two more years to get his final tax cut. Uh, he fought for it. Mellon fought for it. The ele they did so well in the election of 24, they got more supporters into Congress that they were finally able to pass it in 26. And the charming thing about that tax cut is that it was retroactive. So if you go, oh, a we've heard of retroactive tax increases. Uh, oh, that's not constitutional. So the question is, is a retroactive tax cut constitutional? I'll leave that to, to the attorneys in the room. But we'll take it, right? Um, and uh, Coolidge had an interesting correspondence with William Howard Taft, which we're just looking into. I uh, would like to have a scholar just, uh, just to write about that, because Taft liked Coolidge, and they were both lawmen, and they both did have faith in international law, uh, and sort of inspired by Taft, I would say, and along with Frank Kellogg, whose portrait I just bought from Potomac Auctions uh, for the wall at Coolidge House, uh, he negotiated the Kellogg-Brown Pact. Um, and we always, in history, speaking of revision, mock to death the Kellogg-Briand Pact. I think it's time for a revival of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which outlawed war. And we will have a giant conference on it, um, if you wish. Where Coolidge didn't act, um, the historians say, well, he was lazy, ineffectual. Uh, I, knowing Coolidge uh, uh, and watching it, I think he, he was um, where he'd been like Lincoln in prosecuting his war after um, the death of his son in the White House. Here he was like George Washington. He really believed in restraint. And he wanted the pres president to be presider, as Washington had thought the president should be, not king, not actor, in a time of peace. So he delegated like crazy. He was a master delegator. Uh, he was an insistent delegator. He told one cabinet member, if you don't do your job, I'll replace you. Don't come running to me to ask what to do. You are ex-secretary. And it was on principle that he acted. He didn't care if that made him look lazy. He thought it was good for our republic if he restrained um, from jumping in. And a, a, that's particularly evident in two places. Um, after the flood of the Mississippi, he, he did not go to the flood of the Mississippi. What? He did not go? He's cold, he's cruel, he's depressed. He didn't go because there was a lot of legislation pending about expensive work to prevent floods nationwide, infrastructure, and he thought the states should do that. He did not believe it was the job of the federal government to manage our geography. Um, he knew that if he went to the flood, well then, uh, the, there would be so many snapshots, he would lose the votes and the legislation would be inevitable. So he didn't go and everyone was quite nasty um, as they were, so for example, with President Bush not going in, you know, instantly to Louisiana. Um, and Thaddeus Caraway, a senator said, well, if it were his state, he would go. 
he's from New England, right? And then like retribution, there was a flood in Vermont where he came from in his little house. And hundreds of little bridges were washed away, and all the Christmas trees were ruined, and the lieutenant governor drowned trying to get out of his car in Montpelier. And Coolidge did not go. What a cold fish. But the, the Vermonters actually understood. He can't do for his own what he doesn't do for others. That's what the paper said. He's president of America, not of Vermont. He's not Vermont. So that, if you read Burke, uh, I think of the speech to the electors at Bristol. But anyway, that was a deliberate and rather painfully deliberate decision. And the second was his decision not to run again, because Coolidge, hard as it is to imagine, was exceedingly popular. So popular, the sculptor of Mount Rushmore perhaps in joke, perhaps real, suggested putting him on Rushmore, if you can imagine. Coolidge didn't like Rushmore. He thought it was grandiose. And he chose not to run again, as Washington had, very much uh, symbolically. The GOP did not thank him for that. They wanted him to run. They wanted the coattails. But it was a principled decision. He thought we should change office, change the person in office from time to time. Um, so these models of restraint, of economics, of getting, of living differently after a death, but not um, in not not becoming incapacitated. These are beautiful, important models for our everyday life. Um, and at the Coolidge Foundation, we devote ourselves to to making sure they're presented, and we want more Americans to know about them and. Uh, in a speech about depression, I'm going to say I'm optimistic about those <laughs> prospects. To the, the farm sector. Farm sector. Yeah, because you mentioned a lot of um, Americans got electricity and indoor plumbing in the 1920s, but I have heard that the Rural Electrification Act under FDR sort of brought electricity to rural America. So could you address Coolidge's stance on rural America? Oh, absolutely. Um, first, I'll address electrification, and then I'll address Coolidge. Um, electrification is a capital intensive industry at the startup. You have to lay the wire, you have to generate the power, and then you make the money on the margin over time. What's easy to electrify? Dense places like cities. What's hard? Farmland. You can go a mile from one farm to another and all that wire must, all that wire must be laid right and maintained. So of course farms were late. <coughs> the South is tired of living in the dark is the line that was made. The question was whether the public sector or private sector should do it. And in my um, Forgotten Man book, I, I profile a utilities executive, the head of Commonwealth and Southern, Wendell Wilkie, it, like the law firm Wilkie Farr now. Um, he was planning to electrify the South, and he figured out how to raise the money. The New Deal assumed that only the public sector could do it. And you could debate that. And they effectively crowded him out. Uh, so the question is, do you need the South? Will it ever come? 
the electrification of the South or not. If you believed it would come through the private sector, you didn't need the TVA or rural electrification. If you believed it would never come, you did need those New Deal measures. That's the debate. Um, I think there's some evidence it would have come anyhow, but that's, that's just my finding. Coolidge and Farms, they really thought he'd be vulnerable there, right? Because he, where, where, Vermont, he, the area where he lived was surveyed by the agriculture department where his farm was. Uh, and the, the agriculture department concluded that Plymouth, where he was from, was not arable. It was, they farm rocks in Vermont. That's why they have cows. That's why they have cows. As Will Rogers said, the farms don't stand, they hang. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it was very tough. But he really didn't believe in, in um, giving into special interests, even his own. And uh, I can't do him justice. I can't imitate Coolidge, but I can imitate his timing. Uh, the, the agriculture lobby comes to see him for, you know, they're expecting friendship, and, and Coolidge says, well, farmers never have made much money. Pause, pause, pause. Don't suppose they ever will. Pause, pause, pause. Don't suppose there's much we can do about that. Pause. He believed in restraint. He also saw that people were leaving farms to go to the city and didn't think that was bad. You go where the jobs are. Now we have farms that are successful, but they have many fewer people. You know. All right, so last week, our, at least my recollection is that Coolidge's you know, opponent in the election, John Davis, they were politically similar. The main difference was that Coolidge actually supported tariffs. You mentioned today that Coolidge actually supported these international ideals and things like that, and also with his you know, policy goals of reducing taxes and keeping government small, I would have thought from an economic standpoint he would have not supported tariffs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's logical. You've discovered his wart, <laughs> his, great, his great fault. It, it was the fault of the GOP. I think the tariff uh, deserves a lot of blame for many bad things that happened, uh, particularly even prior. Um, it was a terrific revenue engine, and it was easy. Right? You don't tax people directly. You, it's kind of distant. But of course, it, it tariff shows up in the prices, but that particularly poor people pay because they're buying consumer items. Um, the party supported the tariff. Coolidge supported the tariff because it w he was a party man. Um, he, uh, in fact, his friend Dwight Morrow, who had gone to um, Versailles, you know, sent him a book about what's wrong with tariffs to educate his, they were, they were friends at Amherst, to educate his college buddy. And Coolidge sent the book back. Uh, well, Dwight, I've already read this. Thanks for it. Thanks for sending it. I've read it. In reality, uh, I've found that tariffs are useful. Why? Because there were terrible strikes in Massachusetts when Coolidge was a young politician. You've heard of the textile mill strikes at Lawrence, Mass, uh, the Bread and Roses strikes. Um, uh, or um, there's another town with L. Now I'm, I'm showing my age, but Lawrence is Lowell. the one, Lowell, right? right. And um, what did the workers want? They wanted higher wages. How, when can you pay higher wages when you have no competition? It was a really bitter situation with those strikes. We, we really wanted to raise wages for workers in manufacturing. You want to protect the employers if they're going to have to pay higher wages by 
shutting out foreign competition. That was the reality to which Coolidge referred in his scornful note to Dwight, his friend. Um, so if you're on the ground, tariff is, looks like lesser evil department. And I don't think it was. I